So at the beginning of uh, the American sort of wave of lockdowns and things uh, back in March, certainly in Virginia, that's what happened. We uh, began to shut things down to try to stop the spread of the pandemic. Uh, and our governor shut it down. Some people hated that. Some people loved that. I, you know, whatever place you found yourself, it was just a, the way that things were. And I, among millions and millions of other Americans, took up a pastime that I, uh, uh, that, uh, that I understand became big, and that is baking bread. In my house, uh, I could be counted on, in, in the early stages of the pandemic, back in March, uh, you know, around March the 15th or so, I began uh, making maybe three or four loaves of bread a week, uh, you know, trying out different kinds of recipes, but trying to perfect the recipe because gluten-free baking, which is required in our house, is a little bit more tenuous than gluten-filled baking. Uh, because gluten is a key, uh, key factor in holding bread together and causing it to rise and for it to interact with yeast. So I took it on, in addition to all of the other things that we were trying to do at St. James, I took it on as a special responsibility to be the producer of bread in my house. I wanted to be the one who brought home the bread, so to speak. And so I tried making bread in all of, yeah, we. The good news for us is, when there was a rush on flour and everybody was buying all the flour, all the flour, almost all the flour they bought was gluten-filled flour, was just plain old wheat flour. But because it's hard for us to find gluten-free flour, we had 15 pounds of flour in the house because Costco carries it and then it doesn't. Costco carries it and then it doesn't. So when they carry it, I buy three five-pound bags. And when they don't carry it, I just live with it, hoping that maybe they'll carry it again. That's how I do it. Uh, that's our work in our house. So I had this bread, I began to work on it, but then when there was a run on all of the flour and I went to the grocery store one day, masked and safe, of course, at least I tried to be, it wasn't, uh, none of my fellow shoppers were, but I was, uh, I discovered that even the gluten-free flour was gone. So I went home, and of course, one of the many things I have on my shelf in my house is five pounds of buckwheat groats. And I decided there must be a way to make bread with buckwheat groats. Uh, you, you can grind up buckwheat groats and make buckwheat flour, but no, I wanted one to start out just with buckwheat groats. So you can look them up. They're not, they don't have wheat in them at all. They're really a seed. So you soak them for eight hours, and then you know I had this whole process by which I would bake these bread. Because if we ran out of flour, I had a way. Because who really buys buckwheat groats? Not a lot of people. I can tell you that you can find buckwheat groats even now, even when there's all other flour gone. So I was ready. I was ready. So I baked this buckwheat bread, and the first experiment I had with buckwheat bread was a tad bit bland in my in, in my diet, but I kind of liked it. I tried it on Joshua and Linda. It did not fly at all. It, and by not fly at all, I mean I gave them a smallest possible piece, they put it in their mouth, they chewed it up and swallowed it and said, never again. 
don't do this again. Don't, don't do that again. So not to be daunted, because I am not to be daunted, I tried a variety of recipes, some that I really came to love. I began to use things like applesauce in my recipes and molasses and allspice and cinnamon and you name it, it was in my bread and I loved the bread. And still, a totally negative response from a buckwheat groats bread in my house. Consequently, that's no longer a thing that I bake, although I could. If you ever need a good buckwheat groats recipe, call me. And I think it's good, but you may not, so that's a long story short. There's a lot of ambiguity in bread making. There's ambiguity at the front end because it's partly science, but it's partly art. There's a kind of a texture you want your bread to have, and no matter how carefully you measure the ingredients, sometimes the bread dough has that texture and sometimes it doesn't. So then you add a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. You kind of, you, you kind of balance it out. It becomes this art. Is that exactly the way I like to feel it when it's, does it, how hard is it to scoop it out of the mixer afterwards? You know, there's a feel to it that becomes more art than science. So it's an interesting balance or ambiguity about how we make bread and how we make it work, especially when we're trying to think of doing it with the gluten-free flour. And then there's a variety of gluten-free all-purpose flours we discover too. And they each react differently because they have different ingredients mixed in together. It is an adventure in ambiguity. But needless to say, most of us are not comfortable with ambiguity. We would like it to either be science and measurable or art and pretty, but we don't have to worry about how it got measured to that place. And when you mix the two together and you tell people that it's not just science, it's also art, or it's not art, it's also science, they're not having any of that. It's one or the other. We are either or kinds of people. The end of Job brings into question all of our either-or-ness and asks us, what are you going to do with an ambiguous answer to the questions you've been asking? Let me read you this little section. I was going to read you a whole other section because I liked that section. I thought it was cute and funny, and I think it's intended to be cute and funny. It's about the Leviathan, which is either a Nile crocodile, uh, maybe, or the chaos monster that everyone fights to try to bring an end to chaos. Uh, but we're not going there. In chapter 42, Job finally responds to all of God's statements. You'll remember last week, God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, which we found to be the storm, not whirlwind. Whirlwind's a terrible, terrible translation. But in any case, Somebody translated it that way, and that's my opinion. Uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. This is Job's response. Heard everything from God now. What is Job going to say in response? Job answered the Lord. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge, you asked me? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Then you asked, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me. You ask that of me. 
I had heard of you by hearing by the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's final response to God. I know you can do all things. It's all great. Fine. I can take it. Now let's recap all of Job real quick. It's very easy. Job's doing great. His life is perfect. He's morally upstanding. Woo! Thumbs up from God. Two thumbs up. God has this, in the image of this particular book, which has a kind of once upon a time feel to it. There is a kind of beginning that has a once upon a time kind of feel to it. But in any case, uh, as it begins, uh, God has called together all of the people, the beings that work for God in heaven and said, he says to the accuser, one of the beings that works for him, uh, for God, says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? And the accuser says, well, of course Job likes you because you've given him everything. Of course he's going to like you. He loves you because of your stuff, because you are the God who gives him what he wants. And God said, I don't think so. I think you're wrong. Let's make a bet. Uh, and uh, the accuser says, OK, by the end of the story, God's going to curse you to your face. I believe that's what's going to happen if you just let me take away some of his things. And so God gives him permission to take away a few of his things, just not mess with him and his life. So he loses everything. All of his children die, his family. He, he gets to keep his wife, but everything else, not good. All of his stuff and his children die, gone. And then that's not enough. Job doesn't understand, but he's fine. So. Uh, the accuser comes and says, uh, it's because you didn't let me touch him. Let me touch him. I'll make his life uncomfortable. So he touches his body. He has boils. He gets sick. The whole nine yards. It's an interesting kind of setup for these theological arguments. Job has three friends that come and sit with him in sadness for seven days and remain silent. The best part they played in the entire story was silence for seven days. At the end of the seven days, the friends begin to accuse Job of immorality, of unrighteousness, and tell him that all of the bad things that have happened to him are God's judgment on him. Job doesn't buy it. But Job blames God. Job says, listen, I, I want my day in court. It's God's fault that this is happening to me. I thought God was just, but apparently God is unjust. And you know how I know? Because I didn't do anything, and God is treating me like dirt. And it's clearly that God has it out for me. Now let me talk to God face to face like a courtroom, and I'll straighten this out. So it goes back and forth, the friends accusing Job of being the immoral one. Then Job accuses God. God doesn't, he, does, he speaks a little bit to his friends, but he mostly talks to God and says, God, I don't even know you anymore. Who have you even become? The, you're not the God I bought into. I signed on the bottom line of a God who gave me things because I was righteous. What is this about? Clearly, this is messed up. And then God shows up. And God says, where were you when I was making everything 14.6 billion years ago? 
Where, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and making sure that they were solid foundations? Where were you when I gave birth to chaos itself? Held it in my arms, wrapped it carefully though and set its limits. Where were you when I did all of that? And it goes back and forth. He tells some cute stories about uh, you know, the chaos of the sea and of Leviathan, either the chaos monster and, or the crocodile. And he says, you know, Job, if it's all that big of a deal to you, can you take Leviathan home, a Nile crocodile, and play with it? Uh, let it play with your children. Put a leash on it. Let them take them for a walk. Uh, which, by the way, don't try that at home. Uh, and I think God was being a little facetious. Job, you can't capture a Leviathan. So Job finally relents, chapter 42. Okay, God, clearly you can do anything. Clearly you can do anything. And I didn't see the whole picture. I only saw my picture. My picture. Because let's be honest about everything we do in life, it's all self-referential. It's about me. I'm the measure. If things are bad, when I say things are bad, what I mean is things are bad for me. I don't mean things are bad for everybody else. It could be great for all of you, and it could stink for me. So then what am I going to say? I don't say things are bad for me. I just say things are bad because that's how I see it. That's where it comes from. We are completely self-referential. And Job has been completely self-referential just like his friends have been, quite frankly. It's all about you. You made the mistakes. It's your fault. Why weren't you healed? It's like those kind of crazy religious people that said, if only you had more faith, you'd be healed. That's just a bunch of stuff. There's no truth in that at all. It's blaming you. And we all would like to have someone to blame. Most of the time, when things aren't going the way we want, we want someone to blame. And Job wanted someone to blame. Because it was happening to him. And he took it personally. And God said, you know, there's chaos in the world. I gave birth to it. It's just part of being alive. And Job said, all right, fine. Clearly, I don't get it. And you get it. But you're God. And you're strong enough, and I trust you as God to be God. And he goes on. It's, it's, it's a wonderful passage. Then he quotes God. You know, I've uttered what I didn't understand. I, I didn't understand it. What I didn't understand most, I think Job is saying, is I didn't understand that I had measured everything by me. I had measured everything by me. And as long as I measure everything by me, then how it affects me is whether it's good or bad. I forgot there's a whole wide world. In fact, not just a whole wide world, there's an entire universe. Stars that sang with joy. We learned last week they sang with joy. They were so happy up there. Uh, I had lost track of anybody but me and my own moral system. And so when my moral system came into question, of course I was ticked off. Everything I thought was true, out of the corner of my eye, kind of had this sense, maybe, maybe it's not as true as I thought it was. Well, what's going to be my response? 
Well, it's going to be being afraid, of course. I was afraid that I was wrong, and I was, but I didn't want to face my fear. Therefore, I've uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me which I didn't know. Now, let's just get to the bottom of it. You just don't know everything. I don't know everything. I know some of you think I know everything. My children thought I knew everything until they were about two, and then they got over it. Dad, clearly you don't know everything because that's not what Joey down the street says. You know, uh, okay, well, there we go. But for a brief period of time, I knew everything. It's not hard to know everything when you're talking to someone who doesn't know much yet. Now, both of my children know more than me, and they literally know more than me. I'm, I'm not kidding. They know a lot, very bright. Then he quotes God again, hear and I will speak. Now, what is interesting here is the poet who writes this down doesn't quote God directly. He messes with it a little bit. This isn't exactly what God said. But he wanted to jump to the place where the word hear was in it because he's building a bridge now for us. Hear and I will speak. I will question you, God says, and you declare to me. This is an interesting turn. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you. I had heard of you with my ears. Now, I have to tell you, 20 years ago when I interpreted this text, and I believe I've preached about it before, I'm sure, but when I, when I heard that text, the first time I heard it, I was convinced that what that meant was, you know, I had heard about you secondhand, and now I see you in person. I, that's what I thought. It was all about hearing and seeing. But now I think it's about something more than that. It's drawing to the fact that I had heard about you, but now I'm coming to see that reality is not as big as I had thought it was before now. I'm seeing with new eyes. You know what they say about seeing? 90% of it is below the surface. Often what we see is predetermined by our own set of values and paradigms, the things we are running through our brain. Listen, I, do you remember back when we had Katrina and they showed images of what was happening in the flooding down in New Orleans? There was a white man that went in and stole water from a convenience store and he was being he, he, was being, he was being ingenious. He was taking care of his needs. He was foraging. A black man went into a store, and the same newscaster, the same newscaster said, looting. He's looting when he takes water. There's looting by the black man. There's foraging by the white man. Now, they were both doing the exact same thing. Exact same thing. What does that say? It says the newscaster's perception was already set up in his brain. If you watched both of them, all you saw was two men of different colored skins foraging, or two men of different colored skins stealing, looting. But how you see one as foraging and one as looting is really based on your own stuff. It's the 90% that's the assumptions behind your eyes. It happens behind your eyes. You already have preconceptions about everything. And let me tell you, part of that is good. 
If you didn't have a way of organizing reality when you looked at it, you wouldn't be able to see it. It would just be a random set of images. Part, one of the hardest things to do when you're growing up is you start to begin to see things. First you only see in black and white, and then you see in color. And then you have to learn to label things and figure out what they are. Oh, that's grass. Oh, that's concrete. Oh, that's the stove. And you put all these labels on these things. They're artificial. They're the ones that your parents gave. That's the one the language gave you, whatever. But you put those labels on there. And it's good to know the stove is much different than a blade of grass. Don't touch the stove when you see little orange things shooting out of the top of it. It's hot. Blade of grass, perfectly fine, unless there's a little striped creature on it flying with little wings, then don't mess with that because it might sting you. It could be a bee. You learn to distinguish those things. But oftentimes, we don't see what is. We, see, we don't see what the things as they are. We see things as we are. We bring our assumptions to every moment. And I hear Job saying, I brought my assumptions into all the calamity that fell on me, and my assumptions fell short. My assumptions were you would vindicate me and you would make everything right. Now, if you read to the end of Job, it has a fairy tale ending, and everything happens well, and it all, he gets double what he had before, everything's great, you know. But at this point, Job has no idea. All he knows is everything he thought was true isn't true anymore. And he has to decide, am I going to look it in the face? Am I going to face my fears? Or am I just going to keep them in the periphery while I scream at God? <laughs> For many of us, we never are willing to face the fears that are in the periphery, on our peripheral vision. Instead, we just scream at God. Job invites us to do something more, to look our fears in the face. And then it ends with a completely enigmatic verse 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let me just tell you what. I have this on good authority because I, I, read, I read in preparation today. Isn't that good? You hope I'm reading in preparation for a sermon, but I read in preparation for this. There are somewhere between five and six ways that verse 6 can be interpreted from the Hebrew. Five or six ways. And one of the things that was posited by the interpreter that I was reading said, maybe, maybe the writer, the poet, from the book of Job did that on purpose. Because you want a moral answer to come out of the book of Job. Face it. You pick up the book. You know, I assumed for my entire childhood that Job was a patient man. You know why? Because everyone says they have the patience of Job. That was, a, that was a phrase I grew up with. And if you've never heard it before, just look it up. If I had the patience of Job, what that's saying is I have no patience at all. I blame everybody but me. It's not my fault. I'm not making room for chaos. That just irritates me. Job had no patience at all. So if you came to this book listening for the last five weeks or the last four weeks and four and a half weeks because now we're halfway through the sermon, maybe slightly more than halfway. 
Uh, hopefully, you're saying, James, it's 11.50. Come on, dude. Bring it to an end. Okay, four and three quarters way through the sermon. You've listened, and you've been waiting for the patience of Job. How do I develop the patience of Job? Guess what? There is no patience in Job. There's simply a final facing of the reality that I don't know everything and that chaos overwhelms me sometimes. Have you ever asked your question? I faced a big moment of chaos for me just a couple of years back. My best friend, three years younger than me, died. Massive organ failure, died. As I chatted with God about that, I said, you know, Michael was a great guy. Why couldn't you have killed a couple of drug dealers? Why couldn't they have died of massive organ? You know, I started bargaining. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Why do the good die young? You know, I mean, uh, all of that kind of stuff. I wanted it to make sense. Why does one person get cancer and the next person doesn't? It's not because there's, a, it's, it's not a genetic lottery. It seems to be totally random sometimes. Totally random. You can predict some things, but you can't predict others. People that need rain don't get it, and people that have already inundated with it so much that they are flooded get more. Why? Is it that God's punishing the people who didn't get rain, or punishing people that got flooded? Or is it just random chaos that's part of the world? And if it's random chaos, I'm just not even sure I want to stop the world I want to get off. Stop the world I want to get off. This chaos is not okay. Job in this ambiguous statement could be saying, I despise myself and repent in, duck, ducks, uh, in, in dust and ashes. Or he could be saying, I despise the way I looked at things and I, but then again, I'm only dust and ashes. I'm finite and you're infinite. And there are several other interpretations of the way it could be translated because the Hebrew is ambiguous. I would like to end the sermon series by telling you life makes sense all the time, everywhere. That life is predictable. It, it's simply not. I read a story as I was preparing for this about a woman whose son died tragically. And she turned to the God statements in the book of Job on the morning of his funeral to prepare herself. Of all things, you know, where were you when I made the earth? Where were you when I laid its foundations? I was told earlier today that if I did it in a deeper voice, you'd take it more seriously. Of course, everyone's smiling in here, so I don't think they did. Um, and she said something to the effect of, I read it because I needed to be reminded that my pain isn't the only pain in the universe and that God is bigger 
that God is stronger even than the chaos. I don't think we should ever glibly look over the chaos in people's lives, including our own. But sometimes Annie's song, The Sun Will Come Up Tomorrow, is the assurance we need. <laughs> you know, because the sun keeps rising and setting, even in the midst of our pain. How can the sun keep rising and setting when things are so bad? When 140,000 people have died from COVID-19 in the United States, that's not worldwide. And it's only going to grow. How can the sun come up tomorrow? But the sun will come up tomorrow. And God is still stronger than chaos. And you and I need to face our fears. If you're beginning to suspect that some of the things you thought were sure are maybe not so sure, sit with them. Face your worst fears. What is the worst thing that could happen if you find out they're true? Job's whole worldview is turned upside down. And he sees the world differently. It's hard to get to that place. The journey in between stinks. Ask Job. So this week, I encourage you, sit with those things you fear that you, you fear might be true, that for a while you've just had a sneaking suspicion that all the things you assumed were just that, assumptions, not truths. What would happen? What would happen? Is the God you know stronger than your chaos? <laughs>